Morning, Hickory Bible Church. You can turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 6. Thankful for the set list that is timely and that Curtis mentioned it is what we would call Reformation Weekend, if such a thing exists. Tomorrow being Reformation Day, celebrating this year the 505th anniversary of Martin Luther and nailing the 95 Theses on the doors of Castle Church in Wittenberg. But before he was a reformer, a theologian, a preacher, he was a singer, maybe little known fact, and in his upbringing, his parents, when they sent him away to learn Latin and be educated, and he had to contribute to the, the host home, he was staying a couple towns away from his, uh, where his folks lived, and so uh, to pay rent, I guess, he would uh, go out as a little 13-year-old and sing door to door. There's a German word I can't pronounce but it means part horse, and uh, it's a combination of word to give the expression, and it was kind of used in a derogatory fashion of like a street beggar of a kid who would go door-to-door begging, doing something for bread or um, payment, just like a horse uh, begs or neighs for a piece of bread. Luther, could you imagine as a kid going door-to-door singing, and maybe that just uh, gives new meaning to trick-or-treat. Tomorrow, when you have these kids coming up wanting candy, if they just start busting out a mighty fortress, maybe give them a double portion or something. Uh, But Luther had a very high view of music in the church. I know, we all know because of the Reformation, the high view he had of the Word of God. But he said this, next to the Word of God, music deserves highest praise. Music is a gift given to man To let him know he should praise God with his voice by the proclaimed word through music. Luther saw that music, especially putting yourself in his time when not every kid could afford to be sent off to school to learn to read and write. In that society, for a while, the primary way a young man or woman would be instructed would be going to church and singing and learning the songs and committing them to memory far before they could have a book and be able to read for themselves. They could hear it and sing it back. And, and that's partially why he had such a high view of the Word of God. So there's, there's the little Reformation commercial to start the sermon. All right, on to Daniel 6. I do want to say thanks to Curtis as a faithful brother, gifted and godly, always an encouragement. Thankful in particular uh, for him taking us to Titus 3 last week with the theme of how to live godly in an ungodly world because that theme really, though we went to the New Testament to see it, has been the theme of Daniel, has it not? This is Daniel in exile, just as Paul was uh, in house arrest writing to Titus in 63 AD under Roman rule. We have Daniel writing in exile in Babylon under uh, the rule at once of Nebuchadnezzar, and now he is uh, serving under Darius in chapter 6. And it just brought to mind for me, whether it's 2022, whether it's 63 uh, A.D. or 535 B.C., the more things change, the more they stay the same. To ask the question, how can the godly live faithfully in an ungodly world, is is not a hypothetical. It's a very practical question. God's Word gives us clear instruction for how we can survive. Sometimes it comes by way of Titus 3 last week, which just gives you very clear directives. It is the church. Sometimes it comes by way of example, as we have seen in Daniel's chapter 1 through 5 so far. So whether you are under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar or Nero or Newsom, 
Now, I was just using that for alliteration, nothing personal. Uh, the book of Daniel can teach you how to be faithful, how to be godly in an ungodly world. So uh, it goes back to what we've been saying all along as a thesis for this book. Despite present appearances, God is in control. As we go back and we, we look at Daniel today, just know Though the, the names can change of some of the antagonists and even the kingdom changes, still you have this same issue. The, the circumstances around a faithful man like Daniel may seem out of control. But despite that appearance of things, God is still in control. And we need to hear that all the time. And we can trust his word to show us that. We have seen in chapters 1 through 5 that the God of heaven reigns. Over all kings and kingdoms. The God of heaven rescues those of his children who need delivered. The God of heaven reveals all truth. The God of heaven removes wicked kings from leadership. And today we will see the God of heaven redeems. That that which looked like it was lost. Because that is the idea of the word redemption. Something is lost and it is bought back or brought back. It is found. It is redeemed. It seemed like everything was going this way and then in a act of God, of redemption, it's going the other way. And that's what we will see as chapter 6 unfolds before us. So follow along with me as I read the first five verses, and then we'll see how it plays out. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. All flesh is like grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. So let's look at verse 1. A new king is on the scene in a new kingdom. Now the the place is not different. Darius has set up this kingdom where Babylon was. He took it over. We saw that back in Daniel chapter 5. It's right there at the end of Daniel 5 verse 30. Belshazzar, who was kind of second in command under his father Nabonidus, he was reigning at the moment. But then the writing on the wall told him, your time is up. You've been weighed and found light and you are done. And so God uh, removes him from power that night by way of the invading Medo-Persian empire led by Darius, who is in charge, as we find in Daniel 6, chapter 1. Time period, 539 to 537. Probably that, that three-year gap that, uh, in, after the Babylon has fallen, and now you have Medo-Persia, which we heard about back in chapter 2, the silver kingdom, and the vision that, Bel that Nebuchadnezzar had that nobody could solve, that he needed Daniel to help him see, that was revealed by the God of heaven, the, the kingdom that... Nebuchadnezzar was the head of was the gold kingdom, the most valuable, the most powerful. And then it says in uh, Daniel chapter 2, uh, verse 32, 
that there would be another inferior kingdom, or sorry, this, the chest and arms of silver, and then it says down in verse uh, 39, another kingdom inferior to you, Nebuchadnezzar, shall arise after you. And that's all you get about this kingdom that's now in power. And it's inferior, just as silver is inferior to gold. What is that inferiority? It doesn't get into in the text, but maybe one part is it's starting to be compromised by its leadership because unlike under Nebuchadnezzar, one monarch, one despot, one man with all the power that what he says goes, now you see that Darius is starting to set over the kingdom a bunch of other leadership. And for practical purposes, that kingdom was bigger than Babylon. It was expanding further. And so he gets 120 of his best guys. And then he says, you know what? I don't know if I could trust those 120. I need three really good officials over them. So those words you see in your text, the 120 satraps, uh, would be a word like governors, if you will, whereas the three high officials would more have the status of kind of vice presidents. And that's the way that this story starts out. So it's one to three years after chapter five ends. It's not the very next day because it shows later than over time Daniel became distinguished. But I want to highlight chronologies just for this point. If Daniel came, as, as the Bible records, uh, to Babylon in 605 BC, and we're now talking 539 to 537, we've got Daniel in his mid-80s. He has been there almost the complete 70 years of exile. He is an established leader, a wise leader, and God has kept him around. He, despite a change, not only from king to king to king in Babylon, he now is still around, verse 2, here under a new king, in a new kingdom, the kingdom of Medo-Persia. And that is God's hand over Daniel's life. Keeping him, protecting him, preserving him. Though we read earlier in uh, Daniel chapter 2, kings and kingdoms will come and go. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Th that's what God does. Th that, and when it's all said and done, in God the heaven, of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, verse 44. And yet Daniel remains as a testimony to God's power and God's word to preserve. So here we have Daniel in his 80s, and then we have uh, Darius the Mede, who it says in uh, 531 is 62 years old. So he's, he's got a leg on the king as well. He has more wisdom. Now, why is Daniel in the position he's in? Well, verse 2 says he sets Daniel as one of these three high officials, these three VPs, because the satraps, the 120, need to give an account so that what's the end of verse 2 say? The king might suffer no loss. Uh, there's a lot to account for, and he wants these three guys over those 120, maybe divided by 40s. It's good delegation to make sure that he's not losing anything. Verse 3, then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials in the satraps. Why? Because an excellent spirit was in him. That's why he rose. That somehow in the bureaucracy of Babylon and now Medo-Persia, he was maybe the best at balancing the budget. He was always on time. He did not put it in cruise control on the way to retirement, people. He was still the best of the best in doing his job. But really, to explain it, you just have that phrase, an excellent spirit was in him. Meaning, that there was something about him that it wasn't just... What work he did, it was how he did it. It was both his competency and his character. 
I think a principle you see here that I think should encourage all of us in our Protestant work ethic, thanks Reformation, that we should be good at whatever we do, wherever we are, to the glory of God, is uh, the principle of Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine. You see it in the life of Daniel. Where King Solomon, who would know a thing or two about good workers, wrote, Do you see a man skilled in what he does? He will stand before kings and not before obscure men. I think that summarizes this Daniel became distinguished above all. He continues to be so skilled, such an excellent spirit, does so well at his position that he stands before kings and not before obscure men. Young people, why is it important to have a good work ethic? Not in just the quality of your work, but the character you do it with. Who knows what God can use you for, where he can take you with the gifts that he's given you, but it does become your responsibility to develop those gifts, as we see in the life of Daniel now, you know, at 82 or 85 years old. But all is not good because he's been distinguished above everyone and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. It ruffles some other people's feathers. Verse 4, the high officials, the other two guys that Daniel is now in charge of, notice it said he was going to put Daniel over the entire kingdom. As in though there's the 120 and then the three, he's in charge of those other two. Which means that Darius can now take a nice vacation down in Egypt or somewhere. Because he can leave Daniel in charge. Similar to the rise of Joseph. In Genesis. Well, the other guys didn't like it. So verse 4, they come together. The high officials, the satraps, sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. As in, they didn't like he was getting a promotion in the kingdom. Notice what that verse doesn't say. They didn't like his monotheism. They didn't like that he was a goody two-shoes. He was a, a Bible banger, you know. It says nothing about his faith. They were purely in it for human motives. Envy. Desirous to, to not let him move above them. Ecclesiastes 4.4. Solomon writes, I have seen that every labor and skill which is done is the result of envy between a man and his neighbor. That's what's going on here. So before you throw the yellow flag on the field and call penalty, you know, holding on the defense. They're trying to hold back a man in his faith. This is saying nothing about his faith at this point. This is just saying that Daniel, because he was good at what he did and was rising above the ranks of all the other pagans, they were just mad that he was getting the attention and promotion and they weren't. Because we sometimes can be quick to think it's always about what? Oh, I'm being persecuted for being a Christian at my job. Well, are you? Or could it just be you're not doing the greatest amount of work? Or in the case of Daniel, which is commendable, so good at what he does that it draws the envy and jealousy of everyone around him when he gets a promotion. So they find ground, or they're trying to find ground for complaint against Daniel in regard to the kingdom, but they couldn't find anything. No ground for complaint or any fault. Why? Because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. Notice there's no recipient of was faithful. It wasn't saying he was faithful to God. He was just a faithful worker. That's just a word for trustworthiness, reliability, honesty. You could take Daniel at his word. 
If there was a task to be done in the kingdom, he was going to get after that task. And you could give him the work and walk away and know it was going to get done. It's a positive combination, commendation, commendation, third try is a charm, faithfulness. But there's also the flip side. No error or fault was found in him. It was to say there's no sin as a good worker of omission that, oops, I forgot to do that. And there was also no sin of commission, meaning he did something wrong. There would be error or fault. The word error is negligence. With Daniel, there was no careless and lazy work. Or on the other side, when he gets behind, no rash and lousy work. And then, not just talking about what he did, but how he did it, there was no fault. And that word fault in the Hebrew has the idea, or in the Aramaic, of moral corruption. He was not insincere or undermining with his co-workers. He would not stab them in the back. And all points and perspectives around Daniel's life, he was, as 1 Timothy 3, 2 would talk about, an elder in a church above reproach. Meaning you couldn't get a handle on his life. There was nothing to grip. No, 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 no handle to grasp is what that word means, above reproach. And, and like an elder in the New Testament is not just to have that reputation amongst his church. It says in 1 Timothy 3, an elder in the church also should have a good reputation in the community around him. So whether with believers or unbelievers, elders at this church or any church you might attend should have an above reproach, not able to be grasped or seized or held onto reputation. And it's Good for us to see that fleshed out in a guy like Daniel living in an ungodly pagan place and the unbelievers can't find anything to complain about with him. So that's the setup. He's, he's, he's a good dude. And then so they say we shall not find any ground for complaint unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So that's it. They went around the circle, all 122 of them, complaining and grumbling. Didn't you see him that one time? No, nothing. Can you imagine that? I would contend that the greatest miracle so far in Daniel is right here. A lifelong politician has no skeletons in his closet. Is there one that's ever existed? I mean, honesty, I, no jesting. 70 years, he's 85 and he's a political leader, second most powerful man. And there's nothing on him. That's a miracle. No, it's integrity. And would it be that we could live that way in an ungodly world? I mean, if you're a boss out there, what would you pay for an employee like this? They would be priceless to you, wouldn't they? And you know if you don't pay them, you're going to lose them. Because to be able to trust not just the work they do, but how they do it. Now, bosses, flip that around on yourself. Because here's the catch. Daniel was kind of the boss. So if you, if you have some people working underneath you, could they find a ground for complaint or fault in your leadership? In the way you work or how you work? Because these 122 all report to him. I mean, that's really remarkable to me. It's one thing sometimes when you say, hey, if you're an employee, could your boss say this about you? Well, all you have to do is always say, yes, I'll do what you say, sir. I'll do what you say, ma'am. Just, you know, be humble, be teachable, be dependable. But flip that around and, and be the boss in this scenario. 
And 122 people, 122 of your peers, if they were asked, could you find any ground or complaint in, in this person's life? I mean, that's what's amazing about Daniel's character and his integrity lived over the course of seven decades. That the only thing now in verse 5 they say is the only thing we can nail him on because he, he is not for sale, he can't be bought, is that we connect it to the law of his God. He will not be sold for anything less than that. But if you bring God's word into it, there's his price. Is that true of you? Is your price anything less than the word of God? That some, something could entice you to cut a corner, to be dishonest. Whereas you bring the word of God into it and you say, no, that if I know this is what God's word says, I'm not doing it. So that's the Daniel we get to meet now in chapter 6. He is not for sale. That's, that's the setup. Now let's look at the actual trap itself in verses 6 to 9. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, and we've seen this uh, uh, flattery before, O King Darius, live forever. That's a line we are now used to in the book of Daniel, and it's, 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 it's always uh, preceding some request that is, is really to try to get the king to play to the person's needs. So, O King Darius, live forever. You're the best. And then verse 7, all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the government, governors. Oh, this is more than now just the 122. They have sent out a poll or something, and they're saying everybody in your kingdom believes that you should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction. Now, just quick note. If Darius has already not been intoxicated by his own ego and being puffed up, he would be looking in this meeting and going, you know, here's the thing, guys, before we move any forward, you said all of the high officials and the peoples and the governors, but you know, my right-hand man, he's not in his seat. So what's up with that? Why isn't Daniel here? I mean, if you're saying everybody's in agreement that I should do what you're about to say, where's Daniel at? Did you ask him? Because he is my guy. Which leads us to believe that this was truly stroking the king's ego enough that in that uh, imaginary world of his, of his own importance, he just starts going along with what they're going to say. And what do they want him to do? That whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. That's really where the puffing up comes in. We think you, Darius, the king, should be treated like a god. Now, just for 30 days... And maybe it's early in his leadership where they're recognizing, hey, if, if you want to really be seen as king, then for 30 days, you need to be the king of kings. And it's just a temporary thing. It's just to show that, look, hey, if anybody has something to ask of God or man, now, you have to be reasonable about this. They're not asking for an injunction that says, when it says to any God or man, that word petition you know, uh, if somebody wants to walk down the street to the 7-Eleven to get a Slurpee, they need your permission. Now, this is a little bit weightier than that. This is, okay, somebody is, is giving homage or paying respect and, and seeking out that person, that God or man who is in authority. It's only going to you this month. And if they don't, they need to be cast into a den of lions. And then you see kind of the, um, 
the Jafar-like moment, if you're familiar with Aladdin. And now, O king, establish this injunction. Don't read it, just sign right here. I mean, there's a lot of busy work up here. Just to the last page, we just need your signature. That's it. I mean, that's, that's who I have in mind, and not just this because this is, uh, you know, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Aladdin does come to mind with that. But it's a real Jafar-like move. Somebody that really doesn't like the king, kind of underneath, despises him, laughs at him behind the corner and really wants the power, but is doing whatever they can and angling to get there. So just sign this so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. And notice they double down, which cannot be revoked. They're really trying to make it clear to the king, nothing, if you sign this, it's sealed and delivered. What does King Darius do? Because of his own ego, he signs the document and the injunction. So that is the trap. And you kind of feel pity on King Darius because in order to kind of have his ego massaged for a month, to be God for a month, he's the fool for the day, isn't he? Well, that's the trap, and that's the final trap. There's been some traps set in Daniel so far. Now we'll move to a final test for Daniel in verses 10 through 18. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. There is a lot to love in verse 10, and it's bookended with the two most important parts. I know much is said about the part of prayer, but more importantly is what we learn about why Daniel did what he did and how he did it at the beginning and end of verse 10. First, the beginning of verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed. He completely understood what was going on here. He was, he was not fooled for a moment. He went in totally aware what this would cost him. And then he goes to pray and then look at the end. And I think this is the most important part of verse 10. As he had done previously. Because this clears any charge of he was just trying to, you know, be a martyr. He's got martyr syndrome. When he hears you can't pray, he's really going to stick it to the king and those guys by making some uh, audacious, ostentatious display of prayer, which when you read in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, we're not to what? We're not to make a big display of our prayer. That would go against, that would cut against the grain of his character all along, doesn't it? it but because it says he does this as he had done previously, how previously, friends? 70 years since he got there? He was just doing what he always did because character and integrity is, is built on just doing what you always do. You're dependable, you're reliable, you're trustworthy. So he's not, you know, opening the windows so everyone can see him. Practically speaking, have you ever been in Iraq, Babylon, you know, 60 miles south of modern day Baghdad? You know how hot it gets there? You ever check? Maybe. <laughs> the reason he prays with windows open, there's no air conditioning. I mean, sometimes just look for the simple solution. Why are the windows open? A nice breeze maybe when it's 120 out and you're praying at noon? I mean, he's, he's, he's George Jefferson. He's moved on up. I mean, it says that he is in the upper chamber. He has arrived. And he has his windows open, as he always does. And he gets down on his knees, as he always does. And he prays three times a day, as he always does. And he gives thanks to God, as he always does. He's consistent. 
He's faithful. He's not putting on any show. He's the same Daniel that he's always been. But I do, and, and that's, the tra- that's the test. I mean, that's, that really is what matters right here in verse 10. That's the high point of this, friends. He's passing the test here. What's going to transpire after this is just coming down. This is where you see his character on display. And I want to highlight two things from the Old Testament in this moment. First, just why, why toward Jerusalem? That might be the detail that uh, for some of us is like, well, why is that even mentioned? I think it highlights the nature of Daniel being a man, not just of prayer, but a man of the word of God. Because that detail goes back to 1 Kings chapter 8 when the temple has been built, Solomon's temple, it's taken years to build, and the ark is finally brought back in. And there's a, one of the greatest worship services ever done. And Solomon prays to dedicate it, and he prays for the people. And listen what he prays for hundreds of years before this takes place. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 46 to 50. Solomon prayed this. If they sin, speaking of the children of God, Israel. If they sin against you, and there is no one who does not sin. And you are angry with them. And give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy. Far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart and the land to which they've been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If your children repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land. Catch that? Pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers. And pray toward the city that you have chosen. And pray toward the house that I have built for your name. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause. Maybe that explains why he's praying towards Jerusalem. Daniel takes God at his word. If if that's what he learned, knowing the word of God, All these years that he was to do what Solomon said the people should do. When you've been taken into exile because of your sin. That's why they got taken into exile, folks. Back in chapter 1. And God was the one that gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. He reigns. And, And Daniel knows this. Perhaps that's why he prays towards Jerusalem. He's just doing what the word of God tells him to do. Second feature I want to highlight, and I think this highlights not just the the character he has of being committed to the word of God, but him believing in the promises of God. And I don't have time to read both chapters, and you could do this on your own, but in Jeremiah 25, in everybody's favorite Jeremiah 29, particularly verse 11, knowing the plans God has for us, Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29 have been written by the prophet Jeremiah towards the beginning of the exile of Israel to Babylon back in the early 600s. And it even says that he wrote these letters and had them hand-delivered to all the people in exile in Babylon. And those letters said in particular that after 70 years, God would bring them back. We're pretty close to that moment right here, aren't we? 
How tempting would it have been with Daniel who prayed towards Jerusalem previously, all these years, these decades, praying to the place he loved. He would have remembered what the temple looked like. He would have seen it in the distance as he was being taken away in the caravan. And he would have seen those vessels of the treasury brought into the palace of Babylon. And he would have seen them desecrated at the party with Belshazzar. And he would have loved and longed for going back. And he's this close to getting there. So what's a month, right? You know, if I just take it easy for a month, close the windows, wait till dark, pray when nobody can see me, maybe I'll get to go back. That's compromise. And maybe he would have gone back. But maybe on that long walk back between him and God, his head would have been hanging low because he knew that he compromised his integrity. That the pattern of faithfulness and dedication and devotion was lost in a moment because of self-preservation. That's was what at stake in verse 10 that he didn't give in to. That's an example for us to follow. He could have been that close. But if he defies the king's order, he knows he's probably going to die. And he never gets to go back. And he might be rationalized and saying, surely God, you wouldn't have kept me around this long. For this little, what's 30 days? God, I have been faithful praying for 69 years and 11 months. What's 30 days? It's a lot. If for 70 years you've been faithfully getting on your knees praying to God, be faithful to your people, be faithful to me. Because we have sinned greatly against you. But he doesn't. And that should encourage us, shouldn't it? Because we face those tests. And we make those rationalizations. And we have those doubts. And we think, you know, I'll just compromise a little and nobody will see. But God. So he doesn't. And guess who does see? Verse 12. All those... Malicious witnesses. Then they came near. Or verse 11, sorry. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. His reputation preceded him. Just like back in chapter 5 when the queen said, there is this man who has this spirit of wisdom. His reputation preceded him, even though he was forgotten by Belshazzar. Here it's the same thing. These guys know. All we have to do is look up. He's going to be there. He's always doing it. And so they go and they find him. And they came near, and then they went to the king, and this is all happening pretty fast, I guess. And they say, oh, king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man within 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king says, of course, the thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. He's feeling pretty good about himself. Yeah, I made that law. Oh, you did? Well, you know, this Daniel, verse 13, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you've signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And then they got him. And then they got him. 
And how sad for King Darius. One thing that stood out to me here, I don't know if you noticed that in verse 13, Daniel, (laughs) um, one of the exiles from Judah. Why do they have to throw that in? You know, Rodney Dangerfield, no respect. Have we not seen that before in the life of Daniel? What does he keep getting called? One of those exiles. doesn't matter how long he's been around, how faithful he's been, how much character he has, how great a job he can do. Second guy in command, in the eyes of these witnesses, they got to get their dig in. You know, he's one of those exiles. That guy. May that remind us that no matter how long you are faithful at your job and how good of a witness you are, you're not going to win everybody over. You're not. So adjust your expectations accordingly. Don't adjust your character. Don't adjust your integrity. Don't lower the bar. Just don't expect everybody to be throwing you the big party for how great of an employee you are. Because as we said before, sometimes envy, jealousy, the last thing it wants to do is recognize somebody else is better than them. And then they make up a lie. He pays no attention to you. And the king knows that's not true because otherwise the king would have never put him what? Second in command. But the king does know enough about Daniel to know he probably is still praying three times a day. And so verse 14 tells us a little bit about Darius. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel and labored till the sun went down to rescue him. If verse 10 told us everything we needed to know about Daniel, 14 tells us a lot we need to know about this king. He was much distressed. Now again, some things feel um, uh, cyclical, don't they, in this book? A king, here somebody's ignoring their decree. And what would we come to expect from Nebuchadnezzar? Uh, if his name was there, then Nebuchadnezzar, when he heard these words, was very angry. And who would he be angry at? Whoever was offending him. That's not like this king. Who is Darius angry at? Himself. As we should be when our ego gets in the way and we receive the result of a foolish decision where we were duped. And we can double down in our pride and let everybody else have it. Or you could do what he did. You got to give him this much credit. He tries to fix it. He was so distressed, that word for grieved over this. He loved Daniel. It was his guy. And so he sets his mind to deliver him. And he labors till the sun went down. Maybe according to the law of the Medes and Persians, you had till sundown. So this king is digging through the rule books, trying to find a, a, a caveat to get Daniel off the hook. It reminds me when we were in Mark chapter 6 and verse 20, talked how Herod kept John the Baptist safe in jail, it said. And though he was perplexed by what John the Baptist taught, he said he was very pleased with him. And then it says when he got duped by the queen, in the request of his stepdaughter to have John the Baptist's head in verse 26. Similar word, it says he was very much displeased. Why? Because Herod, though pagan, appreciated something about John the Baptist. And that's what you have here between Darius and Daniel. But apparently he can't do anything about it. Verse 15, these henchmen come by agreement to the king and say, No, O king! That it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance of the king established can be changed. And he knows he's busted. 
So the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions, just like that. Now again, in the storytelling, camera in on the lion's den. Show us what's happening there. Nope. You get 16 to 19, more about the king than you do about Daniel. That's the focus right now. That's where the drama is. What do we learn there? We learn more about Daniel from Darius than we do looking into the lion's den. Why? Because he declares to Daniel when he casts him in, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. How does Darius know who Daniel's God is? It's not a trick question. He lived it. He lived it. His words and his works were his testimony. The king Darius could say to him, may your God whom you serve, you know, every once in a while, you know, I walk past your desk and you have that, you know, verse of the day calendar. No, continually. Daniel's life was consistent. His faith was consistent enough that this pagan king of this polytheist is, you know, May one of those gods up there, or the one time, the one I was going on the mission trip and a coworker said to me, unbeliever, I'm going to send some good vibes your way. No. Darius says, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Daniel's life preached. And then... The stones brought, laid over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet and the signet of his lords that nothing could be changed concerning Daniel. And we still don't get anything from the lion's den. We get, as this uh, test section closes, an all-nighter hanging out with the king. He went to his palace. He spent the night fasting. He's a pagan. He doesn't know what to do or what to pray. So he, he just feels, and you know, I, common to man maybe, that uh, when you don't, know what to do when somebody's going through something hard that you feel like you should be there in spirit with them. So if, if, if Daniel's in this lion's den, no parties tonight for me. No food, no diversions, which would probably be some strong drink or some dancers or music. I want none of it. And he can't sleep. He's pacing. And he does it all night. And that's where this scene ends. But here's the awesome part, friends. He already passed the test in verse 10. This is just the results. He already got the A. And so it is with us. When you have integrity in the process of a hard time, a hard decision, and you're trying to figure out which way to go and what to do, we're not pragmatists. We don't look ahead to the end result and say, you know, if I really just want to survive this month of not being allowed to pray, I got to know the process is where it's at. The integrity you show in the process and you leave the results to who? You leave them to God. That's what Christians do. How you judge the merit, the quality of the decisions you make in your life is not by the end result. It's by the process you took to get there. Because if you did it God's way, you've left it in his hand and in his will to give you the result. So the story could end right here at verse 18. Let's go home. 19 and after, that's just, it's just the credits are rolling. 
But we want to see what happens, don't we? So let's go to the testimony. 19 to 28. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. Uh, This has a pace to it that's picking up. He can't sleep, and as soon as the sun comes up, he wants to see what happens. But verse 20, when he comes near to the den, he doesn't want to actually see. He can't bear the sight. He doesn't look in. He stands back and cries out in a tone of, again, he loves Daniel, in a tone of anguish. Imagine if we had these testimonies with our secular peers. This guy cares about Daniel. Cries out. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? He doesn't just say something. Daniel, you're in there? You're alive? No. He testifies in this question that he believes that if Daniel is going to respond back, it's because God preserved him. That's the power of Daniel's testimony. That's what his life preached. That's what his words preached. Enough that Darius knows all the credit here is going to go to his God. Not that Daniel knew some way to survive a lion's den. Response, verse 21. I just wanted to give it a little pause for the, you know, dramatics. Then Daniel says to the king, O king, live forever, which is a fantastic line. He has not said that in response to any king so far as far as he's recorded for us. Because we surmise that when we hear that line, it's kind of slimy. It's always flattering. O king, live forever. And he never says it until this point. So is this a bit of humor? I'm going to ask him in heaven one day if I remember. Daniel, did you really mean, O king, live forever? Was that kind of your way to mess with him? He asked, hey, you still down there? And he waited. And then you, O king, live forever. That's just Ashoff's rendition. It probably didn't go like that. But he does do two things in his response, verse 22. Gives glory to God. When he says, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth and they have not harmed me. Remember I've talked about two horizon lines in Daniel. What's God doing and what's Daniel doing? So what God's doing is just as God gave the people over to be in exile and all the things that God was doing, he was doing this. God sent an angel, shut the lion's mouth. How could an angel do that? Um... You ever read the story of uh, an angel coming and taking out 185,000 Assyrians? One angel, 185,000 Assyrians. Second Kings 19, I believe. King Hezekiah was all worried because Assyria has already taken the northern kingdom away and now they're coming for the southern kingdom, Judah. And God says, I'll take care of that with one angel. You think one angel could handle a den of lions. Now, I think part of the, again, Ashoff has some sanctified imagination, but just part of the reward of being a faithful follower of God is Daniel gets to sit in this den and watch a lion or lions come after him and one angel just grabbing their little mouths like they're just kitties and holding them shut. I mean, it's, it's said the angel came and shut the lion's mouth. So, I imagine that was something to watch, don't you? But here's his other explanation. It was what God did, and then he does say, 
Um, they didn't harm me because I was found blameless before God. And also before you, O king, I've done no harm. So Daniel, as best as he can understand the situation, knew that he got thrown into the den for bogus reasons. He's been faithful to Yahweh. And, and if this was going to be his time to go, maybe he was at fault for something. But clearly he saw by the saving hand of God at the bottom of the den that, that God was going to preserve his life because he was found blameless. He, there's nothing before God that he could say, you know, oh, you know, I had this coming. I was this uh, undermining, backbiting employee, and finally it caught up to me, and I guess this is what I deserve. And he also exonerates himself before the king himself. Notice he says, uh, God delivered me because I was found blameless, and also before you, O king, I've done no harm. And I think there's uh, something to be said in that moment just for the idea that when we uh, have interactions over our shortfalls, Beware of only having the language that clears you before God and not before man. Because that could sound like a bunch of um, sanctified sidestepping. Oh, I've searched my heart before God. Sorry, brother, I really don't know how I offended you. Did you actually ask the brother? <laughs> like, hey, what have I done to you? Because in our own minds, we could be in the clear before God. But the person that we have sinned against were to go to and clear that up. And so in some ways, Daniel hits it on two levels. That he is blameless before God and he says, and before you, O king, I've done no harm. Verse 23, the king's exceedingly glad, commands that Daniel be taken up out of the den. Daniel's taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him. Not a scratch, just like when the, uh, when the three friends were in chapter 3 brought out of the furnace. And it says their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. Nothing on Daniel. No kind of harm found on him. Why? Because he had trusted in his God. It's faith. It's always faith. He believed that God could deliver him. He's been believing that for 70 years. Why would it change? Then on the flip side, the opposite of a righteous man who trusts in his God by faith the king commands that those malicious men, those accusers, were thrown into that same den of lions, children and wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. And that gory scene is testimony to two things. One, there is no modernist scientific explanation, like the lions weren't hungry, uh, they were asleep, they were too tired to eat, their teeth had fallen out. You'd be surprised at what you read of Lib modern scholarship commentators that don't believe there's anything supernatural in the Bible. They'll come up with things that are more difficult to believe than the miracle itself. So the fact that these, these malicious men and their families don't even hit the bottom of the den before they're chomped shows that these lions were hungry all night and the angel did keep their mouth closed. Second, it also shows that sometimes uh, we, we have seen in Daniel where that wicked king, that pagan king, gets a chance and we've seen in Belshazzar, his time was up. And we see with these wicked men and their families, their time is up. Because God is just in his redemption and deliverance as much as he is in his judgment, isn't he? And that's up to him. And there's no rejoicing in the, in the death of the wicked. But it is a reality of life. That this was as far as God was going to let these evil men go and no further. And he was even going to wipe out their progeny. And you see God deal with wicked people like that in the Bible. Last testimony, verse 25 to 27. 
King Darius writes to the whole world, peoples, nations, languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. And here's my new decree that in all my dominion, everybody should tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. Isn't, I mean, look at the, I, I'm not calling that repentance. But when you talk about the word repentance, and it's a turn, it's a 180. I was going this way, and now I'm going that way. Well, that's his first line. I was going in the direction of, I'm, the tr- I'm God. For a month, nobody prays to any gods but me. And now, is it, what does he decree now? That everybody needs to what? Tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. He has a complete change of mind. So might we see King Darius in heaven? Who knows? I think he's got as good of a chance as anybody. Look what he writes. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. For he has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. What a powerful testimony from a king. Last line, almost a postscript. You get these in these chapters. So this Daniel prospered. You write that over his life, right? 70 years he's been prospering, a godly person in an ungodly place because God had his hand on him. And it was a both hand, not an either or. Daniel followed God faithfully. God was faithful to Daniel. That's good news. This Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and during the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So, a few takeaways this morning. When you think about those headings I had, a final trap, a final test, and a final testimony, I want to kind of frame maybe an application for us as we walk away called Traps, Tests, and Testimonies. How do we respond? Well, first, how should you respond to a trap? You need to be ready. You need to be ready. If you know the traps are set, if you know they're out there, what trap do we see here in Daniel chapter 6? That your devotion to God may be the trap that is set for you by ungodly people. Are you prepared for that? We might mistakenly expect our faith to be the reason we shouldn't go through any traps, right? I follow God faithfully. He clears the way. And, and everything is sunshine and rainbows. And that's not what you see in Daniel's life. When you watch it, it's actually the opposite. He, he I would say, lives in that same way that Peter was writing in 1 Peter 5 when he's, he's telling suffering Christians, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that you're facing. This is life in a fallen world. And then he gives them an admonition in verse 8, chapter 5 of Peter. I think he spent a lot of time reading Daniel, in my opinion. When he says, be sober-minded, be on the alert. That's being ready. That's knowing that for the godly, traps are out there. And I know we are always admonished well in this church and by your uh, brothers and sisters in Christ to look out for the obvious traps. You know, sin, things that entangle us. Praise God for those. But we've got to also look at our lives and saying, hey, you're doing well, brother or sister, but are you prepared for what might be coming at you to test you and tempt you and trap you? Because you are living well, especially today. I mean, to put like a little bit of an exclamation point on it, 
What will get you in trouble more today in our society than living a godly life? Why are we doing a cultural apologetics class starting next Sunday? To think about that that's out there in the society that's saying, hey, if you're a Christian and going to live this way, we're going to come down on you. Well, part of being ready is being equipped, knowing what's out there. And being aware, being watchful, verse 8 of 1 Peter 5, because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's life in a fallen and um, antagonistic world to being a follower of God. So be ready for the traps. Second, if there are tests of faith out there for our good, designed for our ability to grow, if there are tests, we need to be resilient. If there are traps, you need to be ready. If there are tests, you need to be resilient, and resilient's a good word for your faith. Do you have a resilient Christianity, a bend-but-not-break faith, as in you're going to take on trials and tests of faith, and get this, you see this in Daniel, as time goes on, and his faith grows, and he graduates from one test to the next, it doesn't get easier for him, does it? There, the mistaken notion that, you know, after you have, you know, you lived a good and godly and faithful life and you hit your 50s and God says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You get 30 years now to chill. There's no age limit. You may get the hardest test right up until the end. So be resilient, brother and sister. What does it say in verse 9 of 1 Peter 5? Resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. Do you draw strength and resilience from verses like that? When you look back at your brothers and sisters who have already gone on to glory, but you look around to the ones suffering now, and you say, you know, by God's grace, if they can do it, I can do it. And when I do it, I help them to do it. And that's how the church does it as one. So we don't fly solo, we can't. And then it says in verse 10 in 1 Peter 5, and after you've suffered a little while, he will allow that. Daniel's 82 and he's allowing it. And this might be the hardest test yet because he was so close to the finish line. And when's it hardest to finish? Close to the finish line. I remember running the 400 meter dash. Wasn't so much of a dash for me. But the hardest part of the race was the last 50. Because you've given it everything you had. And your body just starts to give out. And some of you are there. And we need you to be resilient. That younger generation that's watching. We need to watch you finish strong. And God will give you the grace to do it. And that's how the church stays strong. By relying on the grace of God that we see him doing in others' lives as we run. Don't squander the riches of your age. God has you around still for a reason. So keep running. Last, be ready, be resilient, and by your testimony, be reliant. Relying on who? You just told me to be resilient and be ready. That's on me. Yeah, guess what's on God? All of it. 
you can be ready and resilient, but that ain't nothing if you're not relying on God. What's the testimony of Daniel's life in chapter 6? What did the enemies have to say about him? Who was he reliant on? No ground of accusation against him except with the law of God. How about his friend Darius? Your God whom you constantly serve. How about himself? I was found blameless before God. What does the text say about Daniel? No harm was found because he trusted in God. He relied on God. That's why he made it. What is first, back to 1 Peter 5, verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's why you gotta rely. Because he's giving you the strength. You're fighting, you're running, you're resilient, you're ready, but he's gotta give you the strength. And that's Daniel's life, that explains it. Come full circle back to Martin Luther. When you see a Daniel and when you see a Martin Luther, they all get it. They get this thing, that they are not the explanation for their life and what they do and how they impact others, God is. After the posting of the 95 Theses, 1517, after the Diet of Worms where he, he, was, he was brought in before papal authority to deny and recant and take back what he said, 1522, he has a sermon And people are already seeing, you're not going to stop this guy. And it could have gotten to his head. He could have thought, you know, maybe it is about me. You know, maybe I'm the guy. Maybe I'm the one that's responsible for, for Germany changing and then the ripple effect out to these other places. But that wasn't Luther. This is how Luther explained the impact he was having in 1522 in a sermon. And he wrote this. Take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences and all the papists with Never with force, my own. I simply taught and preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept, the word of God so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Had I desired to make trouble, I could have brought great bloodshed upon Germany. Indeed, I could have started such a game that even the emperor would not have been safe. But what would it have been if I did that? Mere fool's play. I did nothing. I let the word of God do its work. For the word is almighty and takes captive the heart. And when the hearts are captured, the work will take care of itself. Be ready, because you know this. Be resilient because you trust this. And be reliant because he gave this to you to stand, not to fall. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the inspiration that comes from the illumination of your word. Thank you that your spirit can take this word and light our hearts on fire. Because it's not in us and it's not about us. And we know our weakness and we trust in your strength. We thank you that our hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. That our hope in life and in death 
is that we belong to Jesus Christ, our faithful Savior, who lived and died and rose again. We ask that you would strengthen us today for the race ahead. Amen.